Episode 68, John Adams. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, we're back to the new world. After lingering in France for more than 50 years, so we've just gone from France back to America, and we've gone back in time just a bit so we can catch up on what's been happening in America while France was enjoying a quick reign of terror. When we last left America, the United States had adopted its constitution, and Washington was the first president. And something I should have said back in the episode on the Constitution, and I may yet go back and insert this idea back into the previous podcast at some point, I should have said that the preamble to the Constitution perfectly captures what government is supposed to do. It says, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and preserve the blessings of liberty. That's it. It shouldn't do more than that. And when it does, it moves away from being a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and begins to become a government of a particular power structure or a particular special interest group. Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare and preserve the blessings of liberty. It's brilliant how concise and clear it is. People overlook that phrase in the preamble to the Constitution in favor of the more revolutionary rhetoric that you find in the Declaration of Independence. But it's a profound statement of what government at any level should be about, doing just enough to make sure it covers those five pieces and no more. Anyway, I thought that really belonged back in episode 64, but I didn't think of it until after I had already posted a couple of episodes on the French Revolution. So I'm adding this thought here. Maybe I'll go back to episode 64 and paste that back in. But then if I do, I'll have to come back to this episode and cut this bit out because otherwise it might create some kind of infinite time loop that would destroy our current version of space-time. Or maybe agents from the TVA might show up and prune me. and I'm just getting a headache thinking about it. So, John Adams. John Adams is one of my favorite historical characters in part because he just happened to have an absolutely awesome life at an absolutely awesome time to be alive, but also in part because he's kind of an anti-hero. He was brash, abrasive, deeply principled, a fantastic writer, very loyal to his friends. He wasn't a great father, apparently, but he was extremely committed to doing his duty. Before I talk about his life a bit and also his term as the U.S. president and what happened to the U.S. under his presidency, I should put in a plug here for David McCullough's amazing book about him titled simply John Adams. It's a phenomenal book, one of my top five nonfiction books that I've ever read. McCullough draws on years of letters that were exchanged between John and his wife Abigail and John and other people, uh, and, and those letters give the book a real sense of being present with him as he goes through these things. Abigail was also a very good writer in her own right. It was a great book, so highly recommend it. Also, if you're more of a visual person, there's a John Adams HBO series starring Paul Giamatti as Adams and Laura Linney as Abigail. It's based on the book John Adams by McCullough. It's six episodes long, and it really does a good job of giving you a feel for what life was like in Adams' times in revolutionary America. 
And Giamatti is amazing as Adams. That series won four Golden Globes, 13 Emmys, and it has apparently got more of those awards than any other miniseries ever. So back to John Adams. He was born on October 30th, 1735, in Quincy, Massachusetts, which used to be called Braintree at the time. Quincy is a much better place name than Braintree, unless you happen to have an exceptionally smart piece of vegetation there. John's father was also named John Adams, as was John's first son, John Quincy Adams. Spoiler, John Quincy is going to become president too. John Adams attended Harvard back when it was primarily a divinity school and not the opposite of that like it is now. He apparently read Greek and Latin and had a particular fondness for Cicero, one of the Roman writers who also cared a lot about the health of a republic. After his graduation from Harvard, he studied law there as well, earning a master's in law. He apparently really loved the law, and when the revolution is, breaks out in a bit, he really does do his best to try to uphold the law, and he was furious at the British for basically violating their own laws in the way that they treated the colonies. John and Abigail married in 1764, and they had four children. They had two others that died shortly after birth. Their first was a girl, Abigail, who is known as Nabby, and then they had three sons, John Quincy, Charles, and Thomas. All the boys eventually became lawyers, but only John Quincy was successful. The other two, Thomas and Charles, became alcoholics and both died relatively young. Adams became relatively well-known in the Boston area as a result of his opposition to the Stamp Act, which was passed by Great Britain in 1765. And he opposed this very vocally and tried several court cases against it. Adams and his family moved to Boston in 1768. And not long after he moved there, Adams successfully defended John Hancock, who was accused of smuggling. Yes, that John Hancock. He and Adams are both going to sign the Declaration of Independence here in a few minutes. Also, Hancock was probably actually smuggling, but Adams got him acquitted. As a result of that, he became one of Boston's most well-known and respected lawyers. Now, I mentioned this back in episode 59 about the Boston Tea Party, but in 1770, nine British soldiers were accused of murder because of their involvement in the Boston Massacre, and Adams was the only lawyer who would defend them. He had serious qualms about defending British soldiers because he was already very much anti-British, but he felt that everyone deserved to be treated fairly before the law and that they all had a right to good legal counsel, so he took on their case. In the end, he got all the soldiers acquitted of murder, although two of them did get convicted of manslaughter. Despite having defended British soldiers in a very revolutionary atmosphere, the whole episode increased Adam's reputation for honesty and integrity. After this, Adams was selected as a Massachusetts representative to both the First and Second Continental Congresses. As the Second Continental Congress progressed, Adams increasingly became one of the voices calling for full independence, in part because he saw that conciliation with Great Britain was not working. As the call for independence became more and more widespread, Adams organized a small working group to draft up a document that would formally declare that independence, and he nominated himself, Roger Sherman from Massachusetts, Robert Livingston from New York, and Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson to be on that committee. Now Jefferson, of course, wrote the draft of the Declaration, but all of them contributed to the final version. But 
In this case, Adams was deeply impressed with Jefferson's work. Adams and Jefferson were very close co-workers throughout the Continental Congress and had similar views on independence and later on many other aspects of American self-governance. But they would grow apart later in their lives because Adams was sort of a middle-of-the-road federalist and he believed in a solid, strong central government. Not as much as, say, Alexander Hamilton, who was much more of a federalist, but he was on that side. And Jefferson, on the other hand, was a strong anti-federalist. We'll come back to this tension in just a minute. During the Continental Congress, Adams was on a total of 90 different committees and was the chairman of many of them, and he got the reputation as being one of the hardest working delegates in the Continental Congress. In 1777, Adams was sent to France to be part of the American contingent that was trying to gain France's help. He took his son, John Quincy, who was 10, with him. Adams and the French, though, never got along very well because he saw them as indulgent, slow, frivolous, and, well, French. In 1780, Adams moved to the Dutch Republic, trying to get them to loan money to America, but they refused at first. So after some time there, he came back to Massachusetts, but John Quincy went on with their family friend, Francis Dana, who went on to St. Petersburg, Russia, to help with the team that was trying to negotiate with the Russian Tsar. So John Quincy's having a pretty epic life as well. After the American War of Independence ended, Adams was able to capitalize on popular Dutch support for America, and he managed to get a much-needed loan of 5 million guilders. In part because of this success, he was put on the team that was sent to Paris to negotiate the Treaty of Paris that would formally end the Revolutionary War. Adams did not trust the French, and at a couple of key points in the treaty, he went behind their backs and negotiated directly with the British, with whom he felt he had more common ground. In part because of his efforts with the Treaty of Paris, Adams was appointed to be the first American ambassador to Great Britain. He got to meet with King George, and they both left with favorable impressions of each other, apparently. The king, during their meeting, mentioned that he had heard that Adams had not gotten along well with the French, to which Adams replied, That is not mistaken. I have no attachments but to my own country. To which the king replied, An honest man will never have any other. Adams served as the ambassador to Great Britain until 1788, which was after the ratification of the new constitution, but before the elections for president. In the first presidential election, which everyone knew George Washington was going to win, Adams placed a solid second, which made him the new vice president, according to the rules of the Electoral College back in the time. Those rules have changed, but that's how it was back in the time. He served as vice president during both of Washington's terms, but he didn't like the job because he didn't really have much responsibility. The vice president role is kind of a weak role and doesn't have a lot of actual authority or responsibility in the government unless something happens. During Washington's terms, two clear parties began to appear. The Federalists, who wanted a strong central government and a lot of control centered in that central government, and, on the other side, the Democratic-Republican Party, which was anti-federalist and wanted stronger state government and state sovereignty. These parties were more or less divided along north-south lines as well, with the smaller, more urban northern states being federalist and the southern agricultural and slave-owning states of the south being anti-federalists, and the middle states were kind of some of each. The leading Federalists were Alexander Hamilton and Adams, although Adams, as I said, was a more of a middle-of-the-road Federalist. And Adams and Hamilton 
hated each other. The leading anti-federalist was Thomas Jefferson. When Washington decided to not seek a third term and instead return to Mount Vernon, the presidential election came down to Adams and Jefferson. Adams narrowly won, despite a lot of campaigning in the background by Hamilton to make sure that he didn't win. Adams narrowly won and became the second president of the United States, which was, at the time, a huge honor. But because of the way, as I said, the Electoral College worked back then, Jefferson became his vice president. So Adams started the office of president with his philosophical opposite as a vice president, Jefferson. And the strongest member of his own party, Alexander Hamilton, was his arch enemy. Adams apparently hated Hamilton in part because as I said, Hamilton had tried during the election to get a lot of the electors to vote instead of for Adams to vote for Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina. But Adams won anyway. When Adams took office, he kept the cabinet members that had been appointed by Washington, including Hamilton, because he wanted to preserve continuity in the government. I think it was a big mistake, and throughout his first couple of years, his cabinet was always against him and always working in the background against what he wanted. Adams responded to this by basically making all of his decisions against the advice of his cabinet, which I appreciate because it allowed him to not compromise his own morals or beliefs, but it's very difficult to be an effective politician or leader when you don't get along with any of the other politicians around you and you don't have any allies. Adams also had another old enemy to contend with, France. The French Revolution had happened, and there was a lot of sentiment that the U.S. should support the new revolutionary government, but Adams just wanted to stay out of it. The new French Republic was at war with Great Britain and other parts of Europe, and many in the U.S., especially Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists, who were very pro-French Revolution, they sided with France, and they wanted to sign a treaty with France. But the French at this point saw the Americans as sort of the poor little brother of Great Britain. And what started happening over the course of the French Revolution is that the French Navy started harassing American ships. Adams sent a group to France to try to preserve the peace, but he also began to build up the U.S. Navy. He founded the U.S. Navy and, and got funding for it to get started. And they created many ships, including six state-of-the-art battle frigates. A frigate is a big sailing ship, three-masted thing with lots of cannons on it. The most famous of those six frigates is the USS Constitution, which actually became famous for fighting the British in the War of 1812. The USS Constitution, which is nicknamed Old Ironsides, by the way, is the oldest commissioned naval vessel still afloat, and it's currently anchored in Boston Harbor. As part of the push to be ready for a possible war with France, Adams created and enlarged the Navy, and he also decided to recreate the Army, and he appointed the aging General Washington to be the head of the Army. But Washington wanted Hamilton to be one of his generals. Adams had grave reservations about this, but he let it happen. It turned out that Hamilton was basically in charge of everything because Washington was sort of old and was a little hands-off during this time. At the same time, despite his reservations about it, Adams also signed a law that was drafted by Congress, and that law was known as the Alien and Sedition Acts, which gave the government, the U.S. government, the federal government, the power to deport people who were instigating unrest and also to arrest people who published anti-government articles that also were instigating arrest. Now, this act 
was widely unpopular, right? This is a brand new republic with new laws and a bill of rights that says you're not supposed to do that, but this law has been passed, so it was very unpopular. And despite it being something that Adams himself didn't want and didn't support, he went ahead and signed it, and people sort of saw it as his doing. So that was a big mark against him during his presidency. Now, during his presidency, Washington, D.C. was being built, and he and Abigail were the first inhabitants of the White House. Before D.C. was built, the de facto capital had been Philadelphia, but it had not been decided where the official final capital would be. Philadelphia, New York, and Richmond all wanted the national capital to be in their city, but it was finally decided that a whole new city would be built on the banks of the Potomac River in a neutral location. So some land was carved out of Virginia and a little bit out of Maryland as well, and a sort of independent area that wasn't part of any state was created. It was an independent federal district, not a state to itself. So it was not part of the sovereign territory of any state. This federal district was called the District of Columbia to honor Christopher Columbus. And the city itself that was being built in that district was named Washington to honor, of course, George Washington. During Adams' term, a lot of the main institutions of the city were begun, including the White House, the Supreme Court building, and the Capitol building where, where Congress meets. None of them were completed by the end of Adams' first term, but several of them, including the White House, were already open and being used for government business. But as Adams' first term came to an end in 1799, Washington was becoming an actual established city. And in 1799, as I mentioned last episode, Napoleon assumed power in France. And this helped Adams out because Napoleon really did not want to be at war with America. Adams sent a group to negotiate a new peace treaty, which was accomplished. But the news of the peace treaty got back to the U.S. too late to influence the election of 1800. In that election, Adams' own party was divided and Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans won the election. Alexander Hamilton wrote a very strongly anti-Adams pamphlet that was supposed to be secretly distributed to some of the electors, but Aaron Burr, who was also running for president, got a copy of it and published it. That pamphlet basically ended Hamilton's career, but it also probably kept Adams from being re-elected. Jefferson tied with Aaron Burr, and the election was decided in the House of Representatives. It took 36 votes for them to decide it. So Jefferson became the president. Adams came in third, and he was both humiliated and also kind of relieved. His son Charles had just died, and Adams went back to Massachusetts to be with Abigail and the rest of the family. He left the White House before dawn on March 4th, 1801, the day of Jefferson's inauguration, and he skipped the inauguration. He didn't go. He went back to his house, which was called Peacefield, in Quincy. After he got home, he sent a nice note to Jefferson, wishing him a happy and prosperous presidency, but Jefferson didn't respond to it. But 12 years later, their mutual friend, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who had signed the declaration with both of them, urged them to both reconcile. Adams sent Jefferson a letter, and then they began a correspondence by mail that lasted for the next 14 years. Abigail Adams died in 1818 of typhoid, leaving John at home with both Nabby and Thomas living there. Nabby's marriage had failed, and Thomas had also become an alcoholic, so they resorted to just living there with John Adams. In 1824, John Quincy was elected president, but we'll come back to that later in another episode. 
John Adams died on the 4th of July, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Declaration of Independence. He was 90 years old. His last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. But he did not know that Jefferson had also died that same day at Monticello a few hours earlier. It's kind of an amazing coincidence that they both died on the 4th of July on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration. Well, Adams' legacy as a president is mixed. I think he made a huge mistake in carrying over Washington's cabinet instead of getting new department heads that he could work with and rely on. And because of that, his presidency was marked by infighting and bickering instead of cooperation. And he also fought with his vice president, Thomas Jefferson, and never had any support there either. Jefferson apparently often undercut Adams in many of the things that he was trying to accomplish. Adams also fell victim to the growing divide between the Federalist and Anti-Federalist parties because he himself was somewhat in the middle. And that meant that he did not have the support, the full support, of either of the parties. And as a president, he also signed the Alien and Sedition Acts against his better judgment, and that was very unpopular. Also unpopular was his stance against going to war with France when they were attacking American boats. But to his dying day, he thought that it was one of his wisest decisions. He even had a note about it added to his tombstone. And in retrospect, it really was a good choice because news of the peace treaty came back to the United States and would have been great news, but it came back slowly, maybe intentionally slowly, and it arrived too late to help him in his second campaign for president. As I said, his record as president is mixed, but his record as one of the founding fathers is astounding. Just a quick summary. He defended the British soldiers at the Boston Massacre. He was delegate to the First and Second Continental Congresses. He was on the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, and he was one of its signers. He was a U.S. envoy to France and the Netherlands, and he was the first U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, the first vice president of the United States, and the second president of the United States. He established the U.S. Navy, and he was the first president to live in the White House. Man, what a time to be alive and what a life he had. But that life meant that he spent a lot of time away from his family, which I'm sure contributed to both Charles and Thomas having hard lives and becoming alcoholics. But John Quincy did turn out okay. John Adams was quarrelsome, stubborn, he was not a great politician, and he didn't really cooperate and deal with other people very well. But he was deeply respected by his contemporaries, both for his honesty and his usually reasonable principles. People knew what to expect of him. Benjamin Franklin said of him, and I think this is a good summary of Adams, he means well for his country. He is always an honest man, often a wise one, but sometimes, and in some things, he is absolutely out of his senses. But John Adams left the United States in a good place at the end of his presidency, and it was much more established and ready to deal with issues both domestically and abroad. And he set the stage for his more famous successor, Thomas Jefferson, who might be the only person of the Founding Fathers who can rival Adams's contributions. So join me next episode when we look at the guy who wrote, well, mostly wrote, the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm.